Time for the Bible readings. The first one is from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting at verse 1. It's on page 986, and I just want to give you a little heads up that this is quite a tricky passage. There'll be some stories that may not be familiar, but hang in there. The second Bible reading will make sense of it. Ed will make beautiful sense of it, and we ask the Spirit to speak to us. As we read, one thing becomes very clear, that God's people have always had one job, one job only people, and that is to love God first. So this, this chapter looks at how God's people in the past have failed. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of the pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he?
Our second reading is from Revelation chapter 2, and we'll be reading verses 12 to 17, page 1063 of the Church Bibles. Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 12. To the church in Pergamum. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, John T. and Alison. My name is Ed, if we've not met. I'm uh, the congregational pastor of this uh, 7 p.m. congregation. And if you've just joined us, we're going through these letters of Jesus to the church in Uh, in the book of Revelation, to seven churches, but in fact to all churches everywhere. So I'm going to lead us in prayer and pray that having heard God speak, God would help us to apply this teaching into our lives. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you are a God who loves us, so you speak and instruct us in the ways to live. Having heard you speak in your word, we ask that we would now understand and apply that word, that we might live Jesus-like lives, that we would walk out of this building more like Jesus than we arrived. Uh, We want this, God, so that we can truly come alive, that we can live the lives we were destined for, the lives that you have intended, and lives that will please and honour you, lives prepared for the eternity that is to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me tell you about Cultured Cameron. Do we have a Cameron in the building tonight? Great. Okay, let me tell you about Cultured Cameron. Cultured Cameron is so in touch with what's hot and what's not that you would think he's writing the rule book. He's a Christian, but you know, no one knows it. Cameron, is, is, it's autumn. Cameron's cleared out the summer wardrobe. He's already in the loose, flowing, baggy, light autumn wardrobe. He has so many pairs of sneakers that no one at church has ever seen him turn up in the same shoes. Cultured Cameron is, uh, is just really in touch with what's in, what's out. Uh, he's not really a car guy, but his iPhone 13 wouldn't connect with his last car, so he went and got a new car. Old utility, but like sort of pimped up on the inside, really cool. And his connect group leader pulled him up and said, Cameron, you know, you've had a lot of cars. But Cameron went and found some people who, who pointed out to him that this utility would be really helpful for helping people move house. So God would totally be pleased with it. So he was chuffed about that. Cultured Cameron, he is, he is a, a guy who, you know, he's always out and about. He wouldn't even have time to help people move, even if he wanted to, because he's always working and he's always socialising. 
He catches up with a few people from church to time to time. He's dated a few of the girls at church, some of them twice. But no one can really connect with him because he's just, he's just thinks on such a deep level. He's so broadly read. He reads the Sydney Morning Herald and New York Times, the Financial Review, almost every day. He follows Batuta Advocate on Instagram so that he's got witty, satirical comments to make about everything that's coming up. Culture Cameron, he is a guy who is in touch, in the know. The thing that all his friends say about him is friends who don't know Jesus. They say, the great thing about you, Cameron, is that you're Christian, but no one would know. What would the risen, reigning Lord Jesus say to cultured Cameron? Welcome to the letter to the church of Pergamon. A letter to a church that had become too cosy with its culture. A letter to a church just like Christians living in Sydney. I summed up the, this letter to the church of Pergamum in these words up on the screen. A church too cosy with culture must cut off enticing voices and cling on to Christ's word. Too cosy with culture is the words that God just put on my heart really heavy this week. Do you think that might be true of you? Too cosy with culture? Who writes the, the rule book? Who, whose playbook are you consulting when you're thinking about how to make the big decisions in life? What career to pursue? What job to have? How to spend your money? Whether to buy a house? Where you should buy the house? How many houses you should have? Where, who's writing the book about how you spend your holidays? Who do you consult? Who do you turn to? Who are you listening to? Because the reality is the voices that we listen to shape the way that we think and shape the way that we behave. And so we've got to ask, who is shaping the decisions we make, Christians? Because Jesus warns that a church that gets too cosy with culture needs to cut off those voices that entice us away from him and cling on to him. Well, the church in Pergamum had a few cultured uh, cultured, um, Camerons who were enticing other Christians into complicit behaviour of the people of Pergamum, but I fear that our church has just become so complicit with the culture around us that this is a really challenging but helpful healing word for us tonight. Well, as we follow through each of the letters in this book of Revelation, we follow a same sort of pattern. Uh, But before we get to that pattern, let's think about what we know about the, the city of Pergamum. Pergamum was the capital city of the province of Asia. This was the seat of Roman governance in the area, a little like Canberra. Maybe a bit more happening. Uh, Sorry, Canberra people. Uh, It had a hill in the middle of of the city, just like Canberra, but this was a big hill. It dominated the city, a 1,000-foot-high hill, still there today, covered in temples. There was a temple to Zeus, uh, which was known as the temple Zeus the Saviour. It had a huge throne-like altar on it. It had temples to all sorts of deities, and in 29 BC, Empress Caesar Augustus built a temple to himself. This became the centre of emperor worship in the province of Asia. This city was an important place where you needed to come if you wanted to be someone in politics or economics or socially. So emperor worship, idol worship, was rife in this city, and Christians who believed that Jesus Christ was Lord, Saviour, and God, 
all words that were being attributed to Caesar and to Zeus and all these other gods, if you believed those things, then you're up for a real challenge in the city of Pergamum. Well, let's take a look at how each letter starts. It starts expanding on the picture of Jesus that we had painted for us in Revelation chapter 1. So open up your Bibles, Revelation 2, looking at verse 12. These are the words of him, that is Jesus, who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Later on in verse 16, we read that Jesus would come against those in Pergamum and fight against them with the sword of his mouth. Now, this morning at 10 a.m. Kids Church in the uh, kids' talk, we had a kids' talker wielding a four-foot double-edged sword. It was terrifying. The kids were magnified as this thing swept in front of their eyes. A sword is a weapon for war. It's dangerous. But if the one holding that sword is a good, loving God, then you can trust that where it falls, what it slices, are things that don't belong there. It'll be used to attack that which is wrong and and that which is not good. Jesus says his words are that sharp, double-edged sword. They come to pierce and to penetrate. A sword is strong. A sword is powerful. Jesus' words are strong and powerful, and they come to cut to the heart, but they cut in order to heal. The sword is also a weapon for war, and that's especially relevant when you consider where it is that these Christians in Pergamum are living. Verse, 12, uh, verse 13 continues. Jesus says, I know where you live. And that's not a threat. It's a comfort. I know where you live. He knows that they live where Satan has his throne. It's important that you know this about Jesus and Satan. Satan is a defeated enemy in the Bible. When Jesus died on the cross, he disarmed the devil and all his powers. He is a defeated foe. But in the time between now and Jesus' final return, the devil, Satan, is allowed to exercise and wield real power in this world, always under the authority and sovereignty of God. But he is allowed to set himself up in places and be particularly powerful and active in certain places and cities, like he was here in Pergamum. Satan is a defeated foe, but he's a foe who hates you. You need to know he hates you. He hates God, he hates you, he hates the church. And he will do everything in his power to undermine your confidence and trust in Jesus and to cause you to give up or abandon your faith. Well, in light of this, Jesus has a commendation for, his, for the church in Pergamon. A commendation. Verse 13. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You didn't renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, or the word martyr is used there, my faithful martyr who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. The Christians in Pergamum were commended for living so close to Satan and yet clinging on to Jesus. Why don't they just move? Why don't they just go somewhere a bit safer? And that's a great question that an upwardly mobile 21st century Christian can ask. But much of the world can't just up and move. And when we read about this faithful martyr, this witness Antipas, we're reminded of our brothers and sisters in Vietnam. If you're not aware, our church supports persecuted Christians in Vietnam through Voice of the Martyrs. 
And I'm so proud of us as a church because we support them financially and prayerfully. And we say to these brothers and sisters for whom preaching and proclaiming these kind of truths has them locked up in prison or socially and economically ostracized, we're saying, we stand with you, brothers. We, the church of God stands with you as you stand firm in Christ. The remarkable thing about these men and their families, many pastors locked up in prison, they could get out if they denied Christ, but they're held captive by their commitment to Christ, and they refuse to let, him, let go of him, and so they stay stuck. But we want to say, we love you, and we're with you, we're praying for you, and so it's great that we can partner with them. So maybe they had no choice, like our brothers in Vietnam, of where to go. Or maybe they did have a choice, the Christians in Pergamum, but they chose to stay there. Have a listen to these words from the English missionary to mainland China, C.T. Studd. He says, Some want to live within the sound of the church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. He's a man who wants to put himself right in the, in the fire, in the heat, in order to make a difference, to see people rescued, redeemed, out of the clasps of Satan and brought into the kingdom of life. Well, whatever the reason, uh, the reality was that the Christians in Pergamum, living so close to danger, didn't just have danger out there, but the danger had begun to creep in here, in amongst the people of God and into their hearts. And so in light of that, Jesus has a rebuke. Verse 14. Read it with me. Nevertheless, Jesus says, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Do you know who Balaam is? Uh, He's famous for being the guy who owned the donkey that talked to him in the Old Testament in Numbers 22. Uh, Balaam was a pagan prophet. He heard the voice of God and could speak the oracles, the promises of God. And so a man, a king called Balak, king of the Moabite people, hired Balaam, paid him to come and curse the Israelites when they were on their exodus journey from Egypt up to Israel. So Balak paid him, enticing him to curse God's people. But every time he opened his mouth to curse them, a blessing would come out. Seven times he was called to curse them. Seven times he blessed them. And it's hard as you read Balaam's story to work out exactly what it is that he did wrong. But the rest of the New Testament sheds, and the rest of the Old Testament sheds light on it. And there's two key things that Balaam did. First, he loved money. And he was more eager to fill his pockets than to follow the will of God. Seven times he was, he was enticed by Balak to curse God's people. Secondly, it seems that Balaam came up with the idea to entice the Israelites into a bit of syncretistic worship, a bit of try out the local customs. So Balaam told Balak, this whole cursing, blessing things isn't working. Why don't you send some of your Moabite women into the Israelite camp? Invite them to engage in a feast and celebrate a local custom, a festival. And what happened was summed up in those damning words, that Alison had read to us before, it said the people of Israel sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Uh, Balaam succeeded in seeing Israelites turn away from their God by turning in other worship and becoming caught up in debauchery and, and 
disgusting and dishonest behavior, and so turned them against their God. Well, it appears that this Balaam crowd, as uh, the message translation puts it, says, why do you indulge that Balaam crowd? He sabotaged Israel's holy pilgrimage by throwing unholy parties. This Balaam crowd had snuck their way in amongst the people of God and were peddling these false teachings, enticing believers, as it says, to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Next week, as we explore the letter of Jesus to the church in Thyatira, we're going to think about what Jesus has to say about sexual immorality amongst the people of God. So this week, in the letter to the church of Pergamum, we're going to focus on what Jesus has to say about food sacrificed or offered to idols. Well, you say, I haven't ever seen food sacrificed to an idol, so that was easy. And uh, let's go. But we may not have sat at feasts where lambs are getting slaughtered on altars in front of us. We may not have these temples where there's all sorts of temple worship going on. But we certainly live in a city full of idols, don't we? This morning I spoke to a member of our 8am congregation who's been to Pergamon. And he said, you look at that towering hill and it's just got rubble and sort of old temple ruins there. But he asked the question, imagine what temples would be on that hill today if we were building them. Temples uh, for all the different gods. God's idols come to us in, in deceptive and deceitful forms these days. It's not as black and white as Baal or Jesus. It's things like greed or Jesus. Our desire to be in control, to be covetous, to have everything. Greed is a very deceptive idol in our world. And it seems to be the idol that Jesus was picking on here with the teaching of Balaam. You know, I've never heard a Christian say to me, Ed, I just love money. I just love money. We don't love money, but we love the things money brings, don't we? We love its comforts. We love its illusion of control. We love the, the, the new gadgets that it brings, the ability to be on the, the front edge of every trend, the, the companions that we can buy with our money, the, the fun memories, the holidays, the homes, the ever-improving houses, all these kind of things. We do love these things. And because Jesus loves us, he confronts us in these matters. So what was going on in Pergamon? What was going on for these Christians who were getting enticed into this idolatry? It's going to help us think about how we respond to the idols in our age. Well, if you were part of a trade in Pergamum, if you practiced a trade, you would be part of a trade guild. And a trade guild would be a bit like a workers' union, uh, only not just for support and bad times, but really part of your social economic networking and these trade guilds would celebrate the festivals of the pagan deities of the time. And so if you wanted to go to a work conference, that would probably be held at the temple. And there, there would be food offered up to idols and drink offered up to idols, then free-flowing food and drink offered to all those in attendance. And so the Christians were put in a bind. Uh, you know, if you wanted to protect your livelihood, would you go? Would you participate? What would you do? 
Not only were they seemingly protecting their livelihood, it felt like they were protecting their lives because Antipas had died for standing up against this. But there were the Balaam crowd in their midst who were celebrating people's involvement in these celebrations, saying, isn't it wonderful? Look at cultured Cameron. He's right in there and he's getting in the midst. He's got a few drinks under his tank and he's really the life of the party. Look how free he is. Jesus also critiques the teaching of the Nicolaitans. As we've heard over the past few weeks, we don't know exactly what the teaching of the Nicolaitans were, but we do know that they stressed grace. They were overemphasizing grace. God is so forgiving. doesn't matter what you do. Once you've got your pass into heaven, you can never lose it. They were grace bludgers. God will forgive you. It doesn't matter. It's important to note that Jesus uh, here wasn't just criticizing the church for tolerating people like this in their midst, but it was their teaching he was critiquing. He said, you hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. You hold to the teaching of Balaam. Because Jesus knows that wrong teaching will always lead to wrong living. Wrong convictions will always play itself out in wrong conduct. So can a Christian go along to Friday work drinks and get involved with what's going on? Absolutely, they can get involved. They can have a big Friday lunch with everyone. Should a Christian get drunk? Absolutely not. What was Jesus condemned for by the watching crowds? He's friends with, he's friends with all the sinners and the, and, and the um, what do they say, the drunkards and sinners. Jesus found a way to be in amongst these people and not be of them, be like them. As we engage with our culture, we need to ask ourselves the honest question, who rubs off on who? Am I in the world, influencing the world with kingdom values? When I get pressed, when people put the, the heat on, Am I standing firm on my conviction to Jesus Christ? Is he Lord? Am I putting my Lord before my life? Or is my culture getting under my skin? Am I, is the world more in me? And, and is my, my Christianity being pushed to the side as I'm pressed and hard-pressed? And do I give up on my allegiance to Jesus Christ? Who's rubbing off on who? It's far too easy for us as Christians to become complicit with the culture that we live in, both in the sort of indulgent and decadent feasting that goes on and the subsequent drunkenness and the revelry that comes from that, and in the idolatry that fuels it. So I fear, friends, that many of us are just so Sydney that we're barely recognisable as sons and daughters of the living God. What ought we to do? Well, we get to the exhortation. Jesus says, verse 16, read these words. Repent. Repent, therefore. To repent means to turn around. Change your ways. Stop going that way. Start going this way. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus threatens that if we stay too cozy with culture then he'll bump us up his priority list. And he'll come against us to wage war against the things that entice us to sin and dishonour our good and glorious God. 
It's been interesting pondering Jesus saying that he would come to wage war with the words of his mouth. Because as we're watching in this Ukrainian-Russian conflict, words and diplomacy, they're the first step, aren't they? But then escalating that is the violence and and the warfare. But when Jesus speaks words, that is how he escalates things. Because when Jesus speaks, things happen. Uh, When Jesus spoke, the dead were raised, the sick were healed, the blind received their sight, storms were calmed. When Jesus speaks, things happen. Jesus says, repent, church, I will come against you with my powerful words. So, friends, we must cut off voices that entice us to sin against our God. We must cut off those things that make us too complicit with our culture. What would it look like for you this week? What voices do you need to cut off from your world? Perhaps you need to unfollow some social media accounts. They won't notice and you will be blessed. Maybe you need to put a stop to that. Maybe you need to cut off a voice in a newspaper, an opinion voice that is influencing the way you think and the priorities you have. Maybe you need to put down a magazine that you've been reading that is unhelpfully guiding you with ideas that it's so worldly that you are drifting from Christ. Maybe you need to cut off unhelpful conversation with Christian friends or cut off your connection with someone who's leading you astray. Cut off questionable ethics. No more drunkenness. Christians should not get drunk. Instead, they should be filled with the Holy Spirit, a spirit of self-control. You shouldn't get to that point where you lose control. Cut off going, uh, cut off going with the flow, going with the flow of everyone else and doing what everyone around us does. Friends, cut off voices that entice so you can cling on to Christ. No more saying, I don't have time to read my Bible, friends. You do have time. You're just not prioritizing it. If you cannot read your Bible, then check out your screen time on your phone and ask yourself an honest question. Could I put some of that away so I can cling on to the voice of Jesus Christ? Because that is the voice that you need to hear. It is the life-giving voice that will help you stand firm because Jesus here is not calling us to stand against our culture or stand in some sort of Christian bubble culture where we hang out with only Christian friends and we talk Christian lingo and we make Christian jokes and we have our Christian jargon. No, friends, Jesus is calling you to Christ culture, to holy living, to purity, to zeal for God, to love for others, to care and concern for the vulnerable. These things will only become a reality in your life as you digest Jesus' word daily and cling on to him. Having a strong Christ culture will make us useful and truly relevant in a world that needs to be shown a better way. That brings us to our final point, which is confidence. Jesus finishes with a promise as he does in all his letters. Here's a reason you can trust him and hold fast to his words. Verse 17, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. Jesus says, trade the temporary, temporarily satisfying, indulgent feasts for the long-lasting, nourishing bread that comes from heaven. The hidden manna was bread from heaven. Jesus himself said that he is the bread of life. 
comes to nourish and feed your hungry soul. Friends, feast on Jesus because he invites you to a better banquet, a better party. He goes on to say, I will also give to that person a white stone. I have here a white stone that I stole off James Galea's desk. It's a uh, Father's Day stone, and it reads, Dad rocks. Uh, Why does he keep this stone on his desk? Because it's precious. It's from someone he loves. It has a name on it. It says, which I... I think means Audrey, which is also written there, his eldest daughter. Friends, when Jesus says he offers you a white stone, it was a customary way of having an invitation, a token, a pass into a banquet, into one of the temple feasts. He says he's got a better invitation to a better banquet with him in heaven. And he says there's going to be a name on it. And I've done a bit of reading this week. I can't work out if it's going to be your name or if it's going to be God's new name. And then I read John Wesley, who said, if you want to find out that name, overcometh, triumph, get to the end, get to heaven, and you'll find out what that name is. But friends, you have been invited to a better banquet, to more satisfying food. Jesus says, don't go with the flow. Cut off voices that entice you. A church too cozy with culture must cut off enticing enticing voices and cling on to Jesus Christ. For then you'll find life, life to the full, and life everlasting. It's right after a word, a heavy word like that, that we acknowledge our failure to love God as we, ha- as we should, with all our heart, all our soul. I'm going to give you a moment just to pause and confess anything privately that you want to confess to God, and then together as a church, we're going to say a corporate confession. Let's confess to our God. Let's confess our sins to God in these words on the screen. Dear Father, my sin is ever before me. Idolatry plagues my heart. I am consumed with thoughts of self-importance, self-promotion, and self-service. In my deepest parts, I doubt that you are God and want to rule myself. I cry out to you, Father. Only you can deliver me. Show me the cross, for without Jesus' robe of righteousness, I am nothing. Show me the love of my beautiful Saviour, who gave up this glory and even his life, that I might be delivered from idolatry. Show me that in every season of life, Jesus is better. In sorrow, in victory, in comfort and in riches, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. May the work of Jesus ever stir me towards radical, joyful obedience. May he be my reason for living and my eternal source of joy, hope, faith, and love. Amen.